Well, good morning. Good morning. My name is Penny, and I'm the pastor here at Christ the King. Uh, if you are a guest or a visitor, welcome. We are glad that you are with us this morning. Uh, I'm sure uh, some of you are maybe just passing through town because of the long weekend. I know this is a weekend when people travel a lot. We have a number of people away, and, and uh, if you are just passing through town, welcome. Uh, we're glad that you're here. Um, we're also glad that you're here if if you are local and you stumbled across us or you found us or you've been driving by and wondered about that pretty building from the road, um, regardless of why you are here, we are glad that you are here this morning, and so welcome. Well, this morning we are beginning a new sermon series in the book of James, in the book of James. James is a New Testament epistle, a New Testament letter, so it's near the back of your Bible. If you have a Bible, you can turn there. Uh, it's just a little bit past Hebrews. It's before 1 Peter, so if you got to 1 Peter, you went a little too far. Um, but, but I'd encourage you to turn there. If you don't have a Bible, there are Bibles in the chair in front of you. You can uh, open those and find our passage on page 1011. But we're looking at James for the fall, um, and we're going to be here until Advent, so basically right around um, December or so. And so as we jump in, it's probably good for us to understand a little bit about who James is and who his recipients of this letter are. So James is a little bit uh, unique, not completely unique, but um, it's a little bit different than some of the other New Testament letters because it's not written to a single church in a single location. So we think of like Romans or Corinthians or Colossians, Philippians. These are letters written to a particular church at a particular time in a particular place. But James is actually written to a number of different Christians, not to a particular church, but actually to um, the church broadly speaking. So we hear it in verse 1 when he speaks to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Now, now that 12 tribes, it, it reminds us of the Old Testament, right? The 12 tribes of Israel. But in saying this, James isn't saying this is only for the Old Testament people of God or this is only for ethnic Israel. He's using 12 tribes as like a code word for the people of God. Okay, and so being post-resurrection, post the cross, this is for all God's people, not just those who came out of Judaism, but, but for all the church. And he's writing to people who are in the dispersion, so the diaspora. So they've been spread out. So they're, they're all over the place. They're far from home. They're probably experiencing persecution. They're definitely experiencing trial and difficulty. They're not sure what it means to be God's people in this world. And so James writes to them. And something else we should know is that James is the half-brother of Jesus. Okay, so uh, we know from the gospel accounts that Jesus had some siblings. He was born of the Virgin Mary and his stepdad, Joseph, after he was born, there were some brothers and sisters along the way. And Joseph, or excuse me, James was one of those. But what's interesting about that is that James doesn't tell us that. He doesn't invoke that. So in verse one, he says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if I were James, if I was the little brother of Jesus, I think I would write to the church in the diaspora, in the dispersion, hey, hey, this is James. Y'all remember me? I'm Jesus's baby brother, so you should listen to me, right? Like the Lord and Savior of the universe. Yeah, we had the same mom. So, you know, maybe, maybe listen to what I, but that's not what he does. Did you see that? That's not what James does. Instead, he's not concerned with pedigree. He's not concerned with who his mother or father is or even who his brother is. What, what he calls himself is a servant. 
a servant of God and a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason he calls himself a servant is because that is his concern, what it looks like to be servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's not just his concern, but that should be ours. You see, that's what James is about. It's about what it looks like to be the people of God, how we are to live as servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. His concern in this letter is that we would live consistently with our faith, that our outward actions would be an accurate, accurate uh, um, explanation or an accurate outworking of our inward faith. Okay, that's what James is concerned about. And so the book of James has lots of imperatives, lots of do's and don'ts. Do this and do that. Don't do this. Don't do that. In fact, in this five chapter, very small book, there are 36 imperatives. So there's lots of things he wants us to do and lots of things he doesn't want us to do. And he wastes no time getting to the imperatives because in verse two, he gives us the first one of the book and it may be if not the most difficult, one of the most difficult imperatives, not just in the book of James, but maybe in the entire scripture for us to understand and to live out. And so with that, let's go ahead and read James 1, 1 through 4. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me pray for us. Our God, we do desire that our faith and our actions would be aligned, that there would be integrity in our life between what we believe and how we live. And so we need your grace to do that. We need your grace this morning and tomorrow and in the days to come and in weeks and years uh, in our future. We need your grace. And so we ask that you would show us your graciousness again this morning, that you would be faithful and true and that you would be gracious to me so that the words of my mouth would honor you and you would be gracious to us all so that the meditations of our hearts would please you. For you are our God and our King in whose name we pray. Amen. Amen. So there it was right in verse 2, right? Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of various kinds. That's imperative. Count it all joy. He's saying do this. Okay, count it all joy when you experience trials. How does that sit with you? It seem a little peculiar, a little strange, a little bizarre. Like, is James just a masochist here, right? A glutton for punishment? Is that what he is? I mean, think about all the trials that we go through, right? Count it all joy, right? If, if we were to make a list of all the things that we're dealing with, not just that we have dealt with, but that we're dealing with right now, it would probably be at least a page, maybe more, right? It could be little things, they could be big things, right? Like maybe you're a boss or a manager in your place of work and recently you had to let someone go and the anxiety of having to do that. Right, or maybe you're on the, the other end of that, right? You're on the opposite side of the table and you just heard that your time at this company is over, right? Or maybe, maybe your trial is, is relational. Maybe you're having to have a difficult conversation with a brother or a sister or, or with a parent or with a child or maybe you have adult children and you're trying to figure out what life is like with them, 
right? And like, uh, you're not sure if you should say something or shouldn't say something. And if you do say something, you put your foot in your mouth. But if you didn't say something, then you, you know, like you don't care, right? And you're trying to figure this out. And so it's that trial of working through this relationship. Or maybe you've been in school for a couple weeks and you have a mountain of homework and you know that Labor Day isn't a day of rest for you, but it's going to be a day of study, right? We all have trials. We all are experiencing them. Maybe not the ones I just mentioned, but we're experiencing some sort of trial. And the truth is, is it seems like we always are. So how do we, how do we appropriate those? Like, how do we think about them? Do you count those as joy? The, uh, about a month ago, I was talking to a friend of mine. We were talking in the morning, and we were talking about um, just the different things that we're confronted with and we're facing and, and the different struggles we both are facing. And so because we're both believers, we started thinking about this passage. And James saying, count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials. And we're trying to think through, like, what is this going to look like in our lives in these trials? And so we have this conversation. Later in the day, about mid-morning, I get a text from my friend. And he says, hey, Penny, uh, I heard from my accountant. I owe over $10,000 in taxes. Counting it all joy, brother, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's kind of my response to him. But then later, okay, later, a few hours later in the afternoon, my friend texts me again, but this time it's a picture. It's his car. It's being towed away because it's broken down. And then in the caption below it, it says, still counting it joy. And my friend was saying these things tongue-in-cheek, obviously, right? But he's expressing the very thing that we, we feel when we hear this, count it all joy when we experience trials. Like, those things aren't fun. Those things aren't enjoyable. How are we supposed to count it as joy? Right? What are we supposed to do with that? Joy in trial? I mean, we know as Christians we're not supposed to despair when trial comes, so, so maybe we flip it, right? So joy in trial means that we take a Ned Flanders approach to the world, right? Ned Flanders, the evangelical Christian who lived beside Homer and Marge Simpson. Am I the only Simpsons person here? Okay. Well, Ned Flanders was like this ho- horribly syrupy, sweet kind of Christian. Whenever trial came his way, it was no big deal. His next-door neighbor, Homer, made fun of him. Heidi ho neighbor. And he just moved on, right? Bart, the kid next door, destroys his yard. Oakley doakley, no big deal. Like, those are the words he used, and he just moved on. It was this syrupy, sweet spiritualization of turn that frown upside down. Like, is that how we're supposed to act to trial? Is the Ned Flanders approach to the world the way that we are to approach difficulty and tribulation? No. I don't think I'd have it in me. <laughs> no. No, if, if anything from looking at the Psalms these last three summers has taught us, it's that the, the Bible is very, very happy with us saying that difficulty is difficult. The Bible is very content with us saying that a trial is a trial, about being honest about hardship, Right? I mean, even here, James calls it a trial, not an inconvenience, not an interruption, not a momentary hiccup. He calls it a trial. He is honest with the difficulty. And he says in this difficulty, in this trial, we are to engage, and we engage with joy. Now, listen, joy isn't this, like, extreme happiness. I think that's sometimes how we understand joy. 
like it's just like um, happiness to the X amount, right? Like it's infinity happiness. But that's not happiness, that's not joy of the Bible. No, joy isn't simply an emotion, it's a disposition towards the circumstance, it's a disposition towards this world that's regardless of circumstance, that's regardless of situation. James says that's how we are to engage trial. But still, how can he say that? Well, James can encourage us to engage trial in this way because James is looking beyond the trial itself and he is considering how the trial fits into our lives. And when we see this, then we too can have joy. And what James points to is that our trials, they reveal our faith. Our trials reveal our faith. Now, now, before we go on, it's important for me to clarify what I mean by this, because there are some people within even Christian circles who want to appropriate trials and faith by saying, basically, if trial comes, it means you have no faith. If trials come upon your life, it means that you have just little bitty faith. Like, if you had apostolic faith, no trouble would come, right? Have y'all ever heard people talk this way? Of course you have. And that is not true, y'all. That is not biblical, because Jesus himself in John 16 said to his disciples, the apostles who walked with Jesus, and he says to us, in this world, you will have tribulation. And James in our passage says, when you meet trials, when, not if, not, well, just in case trials come, not if by chance a trial pops up. No, he says, when. You see, the Bible, James and Jesus, they, they understand that as we live in a world affected by sin and dealing with the fall, trials will come. They will be a part of our normal life. And so instead of meeting them with surprise, we need to be prepared to engage them. You see, I think that that's some of our problem we have with trials is, is that we just think that we shouldn't experience them. Like, our lives should just be lives of ease. Now, there's nothing wrong with ease and rest. Like, tomorrow, probably many of y'all are going to sleep in and rest and just have a good day away from work, right? There is nothing wrong with that. That can actually be very good. But our lives in of themselves aren't expected to be just this smooth sailing. Like, that's not the biblical understanding. And so we shouldn't be surprised when trials come. We should be prepared to engage them. We should be prepared to engage them with joy because they reveal our faith. And they reveal a genuine faith. That's what James says in verses 2 and 3. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now that word, um, testing, is a very rare word in the New Testament. It only shows up in one other place in the New Testament. And that's in 1 Peter chapter 1. And there, Peter, writing to uh, the church that's dispersed, that's in exile, he writes this. He says, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Okay, do you hear what Peter is saying? Does that sound familiar? It's basically saying what James has said, isn't it? That trials reveal the genuineness of our faith. It's like Jesus' parable, the sower, 
right, in the four soils. So a man went out in Luke 8, you can read about this. A man went out and he sowed seed, right? He spread it and cast it and it fell on four types of soil, on a path, on thorny soil, on rocky soil, and on good soil, right? And when he gets to the rocky soil, this is what Jesus says about it. He says that some fell on the rock and as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. And then in explaining it, Jesus says the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy, but they, these have no root. They believe for a while, and in time of testing, they fall away. So this kind of soil, this kind of root, what it produced was a little bit of growth, or what appeared to be growth, even a little bit of joy. But when difficulty came, the person fell away. You see, the trial tested the genuineness of their faith, and the genuineness seemed to be lacking. It was lacking. And so, so what, what we can see is that, friends, it's, it's actually easy to have faith when things are smooth, when things are going well, when there are no troubles, right? Like when, when the 401k is big and the kids are behaving and the job is just going on all cylinders and you're connecting with your spouse and everything is just perfect, right? Like it's easy to have faith in those times. But what James is telling us that it's not in those times that the genuineness of our faith is revealed, but it's in times of trial. Because for the Christian, for the true believer, in times of trial, though, though that that little bit of growth may blow and it may waver in the wind, it will not be uprooted. The trial shows the genuineness of, of our faith. But not just the genuineness, it also shows an enduring faith. That's what James says in the second half of verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Now that word steadfastness, it means the capacity to hold out or to bear up in the face of difficulty, to endure through it. What does endurance look like in the time of trial? Well, I have a friend I was talking to recently. He's going through a lot right now. Um, he is facing trial and difficulty. And, and I'm not going to go into the details with you, but, but, um, but just know that uh, he's, he's feeling a lot of anxiety and worry. And he's engaging in a circumstance that is 100% completely out of his control. And so we're sitting there and we're talking. And my friend, he looks at me and he says, Penny, you know, um, he says, I I'm not really sure why God brought this into our lives. And, and I'm not really sure what God is doing and I don't know what the future holds. I don't know how it's going to play out. But I am sure that God is at work. I am sure that, that God will hold on to us. I may not know what tomorrow might bring, but, but I'm confident that God is with us, that God is enduring us and with us. Now, if you're cynical, you might go, well, that's just a trite minimizing of pain, and, and he's just saying the right thing to the pastor, right? But don't be cynical in that. Because my friend was honest about his pain. It is real. It is true. But what he is saying, even as he says, I can trust God, is he's saying that his faith can endure. 
that he doesn't actually even need to know how God is going to work in the midst of this circumstance or what tomorrow will bring. His faith can endure. And the reason my friend can say this is because he's seen God endure his faith in the past. You see, trial actually bring, builds stamina for future trial. Trial builds build stamina for future trial. It, it allows us to maintain ourselves into the future. And we know this, right? Because we've experienced it. James actually says you know this in verse 3. Did you see that? He says, you know that trial builds steadfastness. We know this because we too have experienced it. We've seen the ways that God has been with us before. That God, in, in times of great need and in times of, of small circumstance, that God has actually been there and he has provided in the past. And so that stamina has been built, right? Like the runner who tomorrow is going to go out and run 10 miles, but knows that they can endure the 10th mile because yesterday they ran eight, right? It's just a little bit farther. It's just going to be a little bit harder. But because I've run it before or something close to it before, I can run it again that the endurance, the stamina has been built. And that's what God is doing in the midst of trial. That's why James can say we can count it all joy because when we experience trial, our faith is shown to be true, to be genuine, but it is also shown to endure. But trials don't just reveal our faith. Trials also mature our faith. And that's the ultimate goal. It's mature faith. Look at verse 4. James says, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. You see, through trials and obstacles, our faith matures. Okay, so think about it like this. Um, Y'all have heard of helicopter parents? Do y'all know what a helicopter parent is? A helicopter parent is like a helicopter. They just hover over their parents, and they hover everywhere they go, Right? Right, that's what they do. They just hover over them. So, you know, it doesn't matter that's a 17-year-old. You're like, need to see them at every single moment and know exactly where they are at all times, right? A helicopter parent doesn't just have the, uh, doesn't just have the, uh, the what's, what's the thing called for babies now? The monitor, right, the, that makes the sound, but they need the video that they can access on their phone 24-7, right? Like, they're just hovering over their kids, right? Okay, that's a helicopter parent. Well, helicopter parents was like five years ago. There's a new kind of parent now. It's called a lawnmower parent. Do you all know what a lawnmower parent is, anybody? Okay, a lawnmower parent doesn't hover over their children. A lawnmower parent goes before their child and mows a path that is smooth and clear and obstruction-free and then steps out of the way and doesn't have to hover because there's no obstacle in their way. The child can just walk smoothly. Okay, so think about that. No trial, no difficulty, no obstacle, no adversity. What's going to happen to that child? Well, they're not going to mature, are they? Because we know every single one of us, whether you are an adult or a child, you know that adversity actually helps to breed maturity. Right? That having to face an obstacle, having to face a trial, it actually allows us to mature. And the person who never has to experience trial or difficulty, they remain a child even when age should say that they should be an adult. Because maturation, part of maturation, is dealing with adversity and trials. And the same is true in the Christian life. The same is true in the Christian life. You see, as we experience trial, James said, as we experience trial, our faith is tested. 
And as our faith is tested, our faith endures. And endurance leads to maturity, and maturity is the goal. Maturity, that's what this language of perfect and complete is getting at. It's getting at the idea that we become more like Christ, that we mature in what it means to be whole. You see, wholeness of character in the Christian life is what it means to be Christ-like. That as we experience trial and adversity and we endure, we become more and more like Jesus. And we know that Jesus himself experienced trial, right? I mean, Hebrews chapter 12 says this to us. Look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you hear that? Not that the cross was enjoyable, right? It wasn't. The cross was horrible and painful. It was, it was a terrible way to die, and Jesus endured it, right? So, so this tells us that Jesus actually knows our trials better than we do. And Jesus experienced a far worse trial than we ever have. And yet, Jesus endured the cross and that trial for the joy set before him. The joy of defeating death. The joy of being exalted to the right hand of the Father. The joy of redeeming his people. The joy of giving grace and mercy and forgiveness to you and to me. Hebrews tells us Jesus had joy because he looked beyond the cross to the crown that awaited him. And friends, if our Savior, if our King, if the one in whose image we are being renewed into, because that's what the Bible tells us, that we are being remade into the image of God, that that's what it means to be human, to be more like Jesus, if he went through trial and he went through trial with joy, then that's what we are to do. That when we face struggles and strive, tribulations and trials, we don't sit there and say that the trial itself is joyful, but we can have joy because on the other side of the trial, there's the crown of maturity. And so we have joy. You know, every time I think about um, trial and difficulty, I think about uh, William Cooper. So William Cooper... It's spelled Cowper, but it's actually pronounced Cooper. He's one of the great hymn writers and poets of the Christian church. William Cooper, a, a number of his hymns are in our hymnal, beautiful words like there is a fountain filled with blood and God moves in a mysterious way. Hymns that probably many of us know. I, I love these beautiful and hopeful words, but, but one of the reasons I love these beautiful and hopeful words is because they were birthed out of trial. You see, Cooper himself experienced severe depression for the majority of his adult life. The darkness and melancholy was so great that he, he attempted to take his own life on more than one occasion. And yet, though he experienced that kind of darkness and that kind of trial, he wrote words like this. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take, the clouds you so much dread, are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. He goes on, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. Even though he went through difficulty and trial and darkness and tribulation, he can write of God's 
grace. He can write of, of blessing and courage. And friends, we, we who now experience trial, we, we too can not just write words like that, but we can sing those words of courage and of blessing, of grace and of joy. Because we know that though trial will come, that through trial, God is revealing and God is maturing our faith so that we can have joy, not in the trial, but in the one who endures us. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that as we uh, consider this difficult task, that as we think about this perplexing call upon our lives, that you would help us. Help us so that our faith would endure. Help us so that our faith would mature. Help us so that in the midst of trial, we would not call that trial joyful, but what it produces, we would engage with a posture of joy. Father, help us to do this because you, Lord Jesus, have done it for us. That you have gone before us and shown us the way and you have redeemed a people a people who can have joy in the midst of this world, who can have joy despite trial. Help us, we pray, so that we would mature in our faith and look like you, our Lord and our Savior, in whose name we pray. And God's people said, Amen.